You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Friends, good morning. It's wonderful to be with each and every one of you as we begin this Advent, uh, this Advent season. Uh, we're uh, going to be walking through the different Gospels and their take on the Christmas story. And today uh, we begin with the Gospel of Mark. So let us listen now for a word from God as we hear this opening to Mark's telling of the Jesus story. The first chapter beginning with the first verse. Mark writes, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed that the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, send your spirit now. That it would visit us in whatever wilderness we find ourselves today. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your spirit, you might make the zigzag path of our lives straight once again. That through its work, you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight and use them, O God, to your glory. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as the screens uh, say, we're starting this series, which we're calling, Do You Hear What I Hear? This is a series that is loosely based on a book that's called Christmas in the Four Gospel Homes. In this book, the author imagines what Christmas would look like if each of the gospels was an actual physical home. Right, so Matthew's gospel, uh, for example, starts with a genealogy, starts with all the ancestors that lead up to Jesus. And so the author imagines maybe Matthew's gospel would look like one of those old Victorian homes, you know, on one of those historic streets somewhere. Maybe some garland up the banister, the kind of home that creaks with the stories of its past with every step. Maybe some oil paintings of all of the, you know, ancestors who have lived in that house going up the staircase. Luke's gospel is much more uh, earthy, we might call it. You get the dusty path to Bethlehem for that census. You get all the animals and the shepherds out in the fields watching their flock by night. Maybe a rustic log cabin, the author imagines. Some of those animals grazing out in the front yard, a little uh, thing of smoke coming up out of the chimney. John is John. John's a poet. Maybe John would uh, live in a contemporary, I'm looking at our architect over here, I didn't even think about this, we should have talked beforehand. 
Maybe one of those sleek contemporary homes with some sharp angles, a beautiful, perfect Christmas tree, and all glass window facing the street for everyone to see. What do you think Mark's gospel would look like? Right? We've just read the very beginning. These are the first words of Mark's gospel. I think if we were driving down that street with all those Christmas homes on it, we get to Mark's and we tap the brakes because it looks like the Grinch lives there. Right? You didn't miss anything. Not only does Mark not tell the story of the incarnation, but he begins the whole story of Jesus by telling the story of someone else entirely, John the Baptist. Think about that, right? If you are one of the original readers or more likely hearers of this story, you're not getting any Christmas story at all. And remember, too, that Mark is the very first of those four Gospels that J.D. was talking with the kids about. Shows up second in our Bible, but it's the first one written, maybe 60, uh, 65 CE AD. So if you are one of those original readers and you pick up Mark's gospel, the only gospel there is to pick up, you'd have no Christmas story. And I think us contemporary hearers and readers, we're kind of left asking ourselves, where's the love, Mark? What's the deal, man? There's a few ways to look at it. There's a very real possibility that Mark just didn't even know about the Christmas story. Remember, he's writing maybe 30 years now after Jesus' death. That's around the time that we would expect most, if not all, of the apostles, those who actually walked and ministered alongside the physical Jesus, are probably dead. It's possible he just never heard the story, and if you don't hear it, you don't have something to report, to put down on paper. It's uh, also possible, some scholars think that the author of Mark was probably a protege of Paul, and Paul famously, if you read all the Pauline letters, the epistles, Paul famously has almost no interest whatsoever in the story of Jesus' birth. What's Paul concerned about? The cross. Right? I just came from the sanctuary and I just pointed to the cross right above us. That's what Paul is focused on. And we'll get there in a moment. But, you know, I wonder, too, as I read this story that is not a story in Mark's gospel... I wonder if the lack of decor on Mark's house, not even a wreath on the front door, man. Part of me wonders if maybe the lack of decor when it comes to the Christmas story in Mark's gospel is not meant to focus our attention. To make us ask the question, what is the purpose, what is the meaning of the incarnation when there's no story about the incarnation to begin with? What does Mark want us to learn? What does Mark want us to understand about the fact that God's love was made incarnate in the flesh of this Jesus? This Jesus who shows up in his gospel at the beginning as a grown adult. I think there's two possible ways for us to answer that question. For me, I turn first to that opening line. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That might be one of the best openings to a book ever. I mean, doesn't that grab your attention? You open up this story, and then boom, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, who was that? The Son of God. What's on the next page, right? You want to keep going. But Mark is making a point here that the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is not the beginning of the good news in God. Because no sooner has Mark spoke or wrote those words than suddenly he's quoting who? The prophet Isaiah. This prophet who lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. This prophet who cried out in a different wilderness 
to a people who were in exile, a people whose hearts were broken, wondering if there was ever a future in store for them at all. This prophet is reminding them in Isaiah of God's good news, the good news that God's steadfast love was with them, even in a time and moment like that. The good news that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ has already been, what's the word I'm looking for? Unfurling. It's already been put into action across time and space. And if the prophet Isaiah doesn't do it for you, then right after that, Mark tells us about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks and sounds and probably in all likelihood smells a lot like those Old Testament prophets too. That's not an accident. Mark wants us to connect what is happening in Jesus Christ with what God has been up to all the way back to the very beginning of creation. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is not only the beginning of God's good news. It is the fulfillment of a promise that God has made and been keeping all the way back to the beginning of time. But there's something else here too. I think what Mark is also trying to teach us is that when God does something new, it almost always comes as a surprise. Think about how astounding the story that Mark begins to tell here must have sounded to those ancient people, right? Because here Mark is telling them God's new beginning, God's fulfillment of the scriptures that they all know, they've read the prophets, they've heard the stories. Mark is telling them that God's new beginning is starting not where they expect in Jerusalem in the seats of power, but where? Out in the Judean countryside, in the wilderness, where the people who have no power live. God's new beginning is beginning somewhere far outside where they actually expect. And not only that, God's new beginning is coming to Israel at a point in history, an actual point in history, when their future is anything but secure. Because Jesus is ministering in a time when Israel once again is laboring under the weight of a foreign occupation, of a powerful nation, far more powerful than them, in this case, the Romans. I mean, God, if you're really doing something new, it's kind of hard for me to believe that you're going to be able to somehow knock out of power these guys. Have you seen what they're capable? Have you seen their buildings? Have you seen the size of their armies? God's new beginning is coming to them as a surprise. And the greatest surprise of all is the who it comes to fulfillment at. We ended at verse 8. If you just read one more verse... It goes into the, the part of the story of Jesus' own baptism. And it says something like, Jesus, a man from Nazareth of Galilee, comes up to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. What Mark would probably really expect our attention to fall on is the whole Nazareth of Galilee part. Now, we're not quite sure all these years later exactly what beef people had with Nazareth in the ancient world. But it's pretty clear that people from Nazareth were kind of the looked down upon gang. These were the people people sort of stuck their nose up to. What good can come out of Nazareth? And yet here comes Jesus. And not only is he defined expectations based on Nazareth's reputation, there's also a deeper theological claim here. Because all of the scriptures have pointed to the fact that one day God's promise will be fulfilled, but God's Savior will come not from Nazareth, but from Bethlehem. 
And of course, the other gospels that we're going to turn to, they make that connection clear. But here, Mark doesn't say anything about Bethlehem. And these original hearers and listeners, they're going to wonder, how is it possible that a Nazarene, someone who is not connected to Bethlehem, could possibly be the Savior, be the Messiah who we have been expecting? You see, God's new beginnings, they almost always come as a surprise. Earl Palmer, raise your hand. You ever heard the name Earl Palmer? Oh, we got a few. Luke in the back, one. That was me not long ago. Oh, two, I saw another one. So Earl Palmer uh, was uh, an incredible pastor. Pastor of churches in uh, Manila, Philippines. For 20-some years, he was the pastor of First Pres Berkeley. And then for another 20-some years, this guy just kept on going Pastor of University Pres in Seattle, Washington. And then after he retired, retired, he just kind of kept on going like the Energizer Bunny. He had Earl Palmer Ministries, traveled all over the world preaching, teaching. He was a New Testament scholar as well. A mentor of mine uh, in ministry turned me on to Earl Palmer a few years ago. I'm really kind of embarrassed, frankly, that I didn't know much about him uh, before then. And I asked this mentor, I said, you know, what, what did you love the most about uh, Earl Palmer? And he said, the thing I love the most about Earl Palmer, especially Earl Palmer, the preacher, was that he broke every rule there is to break about preaching. If you go find one of these YouTube videos of Earl Palmer preaching sort of in his heyday, he would climb into the pulpit with a yellow legal pad of just handwritten notes. And he'd just start flipping over pages. And he'd do this number. He'd kind of pause, kind of think for a little bit, and then he'd keep going. I mean, he'd preach for 25, 30 minutes, which I'm going to try not to do today so we can all get to Sunday school. But... Earl Palmer was maybe not the most eloquent preacher that there ever was, but the secret to Earl Palmer's preaching that this mentor helped me identify, he said the secret to Earl Palmer's preaching was that no one enjoyed Earl Palmer's preaching more than Earl Palmer himself. (laughs) And it wasn't like a pride or a hubris thing for Earl Palmer. It was that Earl Palmer would get up in that pulpit with those notes. And he would be so caught up in the message that God had laid on his heart. He would be, you could say, so surprised by the incredible good news that God had revealed to him in Jesus Christ through whatever text he was dealing with that day. He would be so surprised that he just could not wait to climb up here and to tell all of you and to remind himself, too, of that good news. He just flipped one page over after another. He was so ready to help you get caught up in the good news of Jesus Christ as he was. When I open Mark's gospel, it feels to me a little bit like here is a preacher with his yellow legal pad. And he is climbing up into the pulpit of his gospel and he starts scratching his head and doing this number and flipping pages. He doesn't care what pyramid someone sewed that's in front. He's going to flip that page right in front of there because he is so ready to tell all of us the good news that has been revealed to him in the story of Jesus Christ. Right? He's ready to tell us, listen, folks, if God can come to an entire nation in a place like the Judean countryside. 
If God can come at a point in history when the world seems to be torn apart at the seams and everything is falling apart all around you, and if God can come out of a place like Nazareth, wow. If God can work a new beginning like that, then maybe God can work a new beginning now too. Maybe God can work a new beginning in this complete dumpster fire that our world sometimes feels like it is. Anyone else look around and think, man, if ever there was a time when we could use a new beginning, now would not be a bad time to start. If God can work a new beginning in a place and at a time and through a person like that, then maybe God can work a new beginning in our neighborhood, in our church. Maybe God can work a new beginning even out of the most painful endings in our own lives. You see, the hope for the incarnation, I think for Mark, is found not in the manger. That might just be the reason he doesn't bother telling us any of the Christmas story. Because I don't think the hope of the incarnation for Mark is found in the manger. And I also don't think that the hope is found in our decorations, in our homes, or in our church. Beautiful, though they are. There was a huge debate in our house about when those decorations were going up. And boy almighty, they are beautiful. They're everywhere. I love it. I'm not trying to be a Grinch. What I'm trying to say, though, is that perhaps for Mark, the true hope of the incarnation is not found in the manger, but in the transformed life that follows. And the lives of those who sit under the word that Mark is trying to share with us. This word of new beginnings. Right? Maybe the hope of the incarnation Mark is found in moments like we had in our sanctuary on Friday. When I looked out on a late afternoon, a rainy afternoon in our sanctuary, and I saw pews full of people, some of whom included parents who have lost children. And they were all there to surround another parents who had lost a child. In their presence, what they were saying was there is hope for a new beginning because we are here today around you because we refuse to stay in the tomb of death and despair. We are going to bring our own wounds and sit with you in your suffering as a sign of the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. I think that the true hope of the incarnation for Mark are people who run out of these doors and go pull down one of those angels because they understand that God has changed something in their life and their heart, and so how can they do anything different but then to try and share that love with a stranger, with a child of a prisoner, Right, I think that the true hope of the incarnation for Mark, I think it's found in people who bring themselves to a table. 
It's in people who bring their own wounds and their own hunger to this place where we are reminded of a gospel of good news, of a beginning that comes even after an end. Remember, this meal that we recreate in this moment was called the Last Supper. But it wasn't the last, was it? There was a new beginning that came after. One that surprised a world. One that is meant to surprise even us now. I think the hope of the incarnation is embodied when we bring our bodies to this table to be fed. To be fed in body, yes, but also in spirit. To be nourished so that when we walk out of these doors, we walk out as people who are expecting, like Earl Palmer expected every time he stepped into that pulpit, to be surprised by God. To be surprised where God's good news is born anew into our lives and into the world. Friends, Mark's gospel is not meant to be the Grinch gospel, though it may feel like that. I think what Mark really wants for us to take away, to take away about the incarnation without actually having a story of the incarnation, is that even now, in this moment, God is working a new beginning. For you, for us, but also for this world. God is saying, come, taste, and see that I am good, and then go out to surprise others with that good news. The good news that defies even the grave. The good news that strengthens us now and always. In the name of Christ, the incarnate word. Thanks be to God. And amen.